through this. That means we have a lot of ground still to cover. There's 20 chapters or 19 chapters still left in Genesis. Uh, but the, the thrust of the book now is going to focus its attention on the relationships that form within the covenant uh, between God's people and God. So relationships in the covenant relationship, God's covenant community of Israel is being developed. Um, God has sent forth his seed. He promised the seed, Genesis 3, to Adam and Eve. Eve and Adam uh, took that promise literally to mean there will be a human descendant from Eve that will crush the serpent's head, that will solve the sin problem forever. And so as we've seen the, the big theological boulders unfolding themselves or displayed in the book of Genesis, we see that sin indeed destroys, but God delivers. God delivers through his seed. That seed has been traced now very firmly into Abraham's lineage. Abraham had the promised child, Isaac, late in life. Isaac's promised sons, Esau and Jacob, uh, were a unique blend between he and his wife, and yet Jacob, the younger, would be the blessed one to inherit the blessing and to carry on the lineage, the seed of Jacob. So with a few interruptions that are going to come along the way, we're not going to talk about chapter 34 today, and we're not going to get to chapter 39 for a bit, but those are two interruptive passages um, that discuss issues, um, uh, tertiary side issues, what we have found as we've been getting into the covenant relationship between God and his people and the descendants of Israel, and we're going to be introduced to Israel himself today, um, what we find is comparative righteousness is an illusion. You remember me making that statement last week? Comparative righteousness is an illusion. If we walk through the text and we begin to compare, you know, Jacob and Esau or, or Isaac or Rebekah, and we start to break down the, the uh, comparative, well, who's more righteous, who is more morally correct, which one was right, which one was wrong, we're going to find ourselves playing the comparison game, and the comparison game is an illusion. None are righteous, not even one, Scripture says. In fact... We are meant to see by this time in Genesis, in the narrative of Genesis, that sin is totally uh, pervasive throughout all mankind. If we hadn't gotten that in Genesis chapter 6, that God it relented God that he created man, so that God, uh, God would find grace or showcase his mercy in Noah, but he would destroy the earth because the whole earth was full of violence and the thoughts and intentions of man's heart were only evil continually. The pervasiveness and total depravity of sin and the nature of mankind is clear in the book of Genesis. All of us are sinners. So when we look at the stories that we've been reading about Jacob and his life, the danger is for us to try to figure out who is the morally righteous one and who, whose life and decisions should I copy. And so as we've been walking through the text, we've realized, you know, um, I shouldn't really be copying anybody. I should be keeping my eyes fixed on God and his promises and his sovereignty. Remember, we've been talking about our faithful father to produce a fruitful follower. And that's been the sermon mini-series that we've talked about, a three-part series the last couple of weeks. Today, we're transitioning from that to focus on God's reconciling grace. I want to see what that looks like as we uh, unfold this mystery in this text today. So ultimately, what we find is God has wrought his redemptive and sanctifying work in Jacob's heart. This is where we pick up our story. He's been in exile for 20 years. Do you remember there was a, there was a, a big uh, family feud, and Esau is tremendously angry with Jacob, uh, Esau feels maligned and feels deceived. Um, Jacob and his mother have uh, figured out a way to, to get uh, Isaac to bless Jacob because, remember, Rebekah knew, God told Rebekah, 
This second born is going to get the blessing, and Rebecca, instead of waiting on God's perfect timing, tries to figure out a way to get her husband to do what she, he should have done to begin with. Um, every, remember, comparative righteousness is an illusion. Rebecca's not right. Isaac's not right. The whole thing is a disaster. The two of them have, made, uh, have played favorites in their household. So the, the two boys are pitted against each other. Esau is a man who, uh, in the New Testament, we are told he's a profane man. Here, by the time before there's even a breach between he and his brother, he already has two wives um, of the Hittites. They're, not, they're, they're natives in the land. They're part of the idolatrous clans that live there. The reason why God wants to get rid of the Canaanites to begin with, he is now intermarrying with them. And Esau is a totally profane man. His direction is against God. And we find that. God chose Jacob, and we're left with that. And we're left looking, and this is the reason why we want this comparative righteousness, because we're left looking at Jacob thinking, man, God chose him. There must be something intrinsically, inherently good about him. Eh, wrong answer. <laughs> In fact, Jacob's story is very much a microcosm of Israel's story. Irony of all ironies, Jacob's called Israel in our story today. What do I mean by that? Well, for, the, for us who've read the rest of the story in the Scriptures, the rest of the Old Testament clearly say that Israel was not the greatest nation on the planet. In fact, there were far greater nations than Israel in times past, nor were they the most obedient. In fact, they're called a stubborn and a stiff-necked people. And we find them as, you know, sometimes I find myself as I, I read through Scripture, I try to read through the Bible every year by the grace of God, uh, I have successfully done that since the year 2000. I read different translations so that I don't get sort of, you know, in the bog of, you know, reading the same thing over and over again and sort of skipping stuff. I try to read a fresh translation. Uh, and so, but I find myself very often sitting there uh, having my daily devotions like this. You're like, what do you mean? It's not because I'm asking God to feed me. I'm waiting to go like this. That was so dumb, <laughs> Right? Have you ever had that moment? You're reading the Bible, you're like, what in the world were they thinking? This, what? Come on, Israel. Especially as you're into Israel's history, the kings and the chronicles, and then you're into the minor prophets, and you're hearing the messages of the minor prophets, and you're knowing what's happening historically, and you're thinking, guys, get with the program, <laughs> right? Wake up and smell the coffee. Come get Jeff's special every Sunday morning. <laughs> you need it really badly. Oh, man, but we find that, that the story of, of Israel and Israel's story, not just as a person who we'll see today, but as a nation throughout Scripture is very much a story of humanity. It's very much a story of man's broken, sinful nature needing God's incredible mercy and grace. And today, as we look at this story of reconciliation between Jacob and Esau, what we're going to find is God, our God of mercy and grace, has so sanctified and reconciled Jacob to himself that Jacob is a changed man over these last 20 years of exile. And we're going to draw some principles from today's story in way of real simple application that I think will have uh, hopefully important consequences in our own daily lives. So as we look at this exile time, uh, Jacob, we remember, he left hearth and home with nothing but the clothes on his back. Now he returns an extremely wealthy man with wives uh, who bore him 11 children, flocks, herds, and servants. The narrative ends in chapter 30 highlighting this truth and opens in chapter 31 with a not-so-subtle reminder of who provided such wealth by His grace. So God is the one who was the wealth giver. Whereas last time, or two weeks ago, we discussed Jacob and his wives, the baby wars, we noted God's sanctifying, uh, sanctification requires us to trust our faithful Father. Last week, we made this pointed statement, if you trust, truly trust God's sanctifying grace, then you must obey your faithful father. And some of the principled application we gave were obedience for relationship reconciliation. We talked about that last week, and I'm going to pick up in a moment where we left off. Now, 
For sake of time last week, I didn't cover some of the things, the big picture ideas I wanted to, so I'm going to open up today's message with some of those big ideas and big thoughts. Some of this was taken from multiple commentaries, so just know, um, obviously, this is not original material compiled over the course of centuries by God's men. So, as we look at Jacob's flight from Mesopotamia, from chapter 31 to, to the present, it is really framed by redemptive history. Looking back, it has parallels with Abraham's leaving Mesopotamia's, uh, the Mesopotamian city of Ur in obedience to God's call. Remember, all the way back to Genesis 12. So Jacob's leaving Mesopotamia sort of parallels Abram's leaving of Mesopotamia. Uh, this is an important illustration for big picture idea because my argument today is going to be an, a principled application that Jacob is the everyman, Jacob as Israel, the prince of God, um, is the picture of the children of God of every dispensation. So we, the church, are not Israel. We have separate promises, but we, like Israel, are the people of God. Are we not? We, like Israel, have principled applications within this covenant relationship that God has provided for us, correct? And those principled applications uh, require us to oftentimes relate to the characters in the narrative. And so as we look at the narrative, my argument today is going to be from both the big picture sweeping overview that the narrator, God, in His holiness has directed us to, and also in the applications that we've talked about thus far, that we, like Jacob, are the everyman, and we have principled applications that are important for us in our life of active obedience to the Lord. So, as we look at Jacob's flight and we kind of compare him, let's take some, of, some stock in some of the comparisons. Abraham took all of his people and his possessions and he left for the land of Canaan after God called him in Genesis 12, correct? Well, in Genesis 31, his grandson Jacob takes all of his people and possessions and returns to Canaan. Jacob's departure thus parallels Abraham's uh, initial obedience. Looking forward, Jacob's exodus from Mesopotamia provides a prophetic outline of Israel's exodus from Egypt. Here, Jacob's large family flees from Laban. There's a multitude of his descendants uh, in Egypt that will flee from Pharaoh. Okay? Um, here, his family plunders Laban. There, in Egypt, his descendants will plunder Pharaoh and his people. Here, Laban is forced to let Jacob's family go. There, Pharaoh will be forced to let Jacob's descendants go. And all of this is prophetic of the glorious exodus that believers would find in Jesus Christ, our ultimate, the ultimate Israel. Jesus plundered the power of evil and led all of his people out of bondage to Satan. Now, Every comparison breaks down. Jacob, remember what I said, comparative righteousness is an illusion. Jesus and, Jake and Jacob are not alike. Jesus was totally sinless. But Jesus is that seed descended through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is the one who would come through Israel, through Judah, the Davidic line, to be king, and through Levi, the Levitical line, to be priest that Jesus would be the great priest king of all time for all people for everywhere. Jesus is our great deliverer and liberator. So the narrator, um, we, we have the advantage then of looking from our perspective backward. But the narrator for sure was intending Jacob's fleeing from Mesopotamia to be a clear uh, demarcation and a picture parallel Abraham fleeing, and Jacob's flee uh, and plundering of Laban to be a picture of Israel's plundering Egypt. And it's for a purpose, because God is showcasing his ability to save, his ability to deliver from the ultimate suffering, and that is the suffering of sin. Because remember, what is the theme of Genesis? Sin destroys, but God delivers. And that is meant to be a big picture theme. 
Now, the driving point of the narrative of Jacob's escape in Genesis 31 is that God did it all. Do you remember last week I mentioned uh, Jacob says God's name or alludes to God directly no, no less than seven times? We're going to find some similarities in chapters 32 and 33 today. Uh, through his multitude of interventions and his constant protection, God was always there. God would later do exactly the same in Moses' escape from Egypt, and so it is now in it, so and so it now is in the ultimate exodus in Christ. All glory goes to God. Jacob was looking good, better than he ever had here in his escape. Uh, he still had a considerable way to go, but this was not the heel-grabbing person who double-dealt his brother and duped his father. Jacob was becoming a man of character who kept his word. His exodus from Mesopotamia had been characterized by his faithful obedience to God's word. Jacob understood that his entire deliverance had been wrought by God. Repeatedly, he credited God with his success. His placing a stone pillar alongside the heap of stones declared his faith in the God of Bethel and his constant provision. Through, though far from perfect, Jacob had grown in grace by God's grace. And for any who have eyes to see, here is the work of an awesome, sovereign God who works amidst the compost of human sin to do his will. Amidst the swirl of deception and intrigue, God birthed a people who would become the twelve tribes of Israel. God took a poor man who had been repeatedly enslaved and exploited and made him rich. And now God led him in a glorious exodus as a prelude to his return to the land of promise. God is an awesome God. And all of this is merely a shadow of what Christ does for his people in the exodus of the cross. The shorthand for what we see in the history of redemption, that is in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all true Israel is this. Listen to Romans 8, 28 to 32. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who, he who did not spare his one and only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, God's incredible comfort is provided to those who desire to grow in grace. Our part is to faithfully follow him. So as we closed out our mini-series, Faithful Father, Fruitful Follower, today we're going to springboard into some uh, application that I think is really pointed for everyone. If you've ever been in a relationship, as in you've had a mother or father, I think that's pretty much everybody in here. Uh, if you've ever been in that relationship, if you've ever had siblings or nephews and nieces or cousins, if you ever had uh, step-siblings in broken relationships, then you understand the need for God's reconciling grace. You've had issues where life has been hard and friendships, relationships have been torn apart by either sin that's been foisted upon you or your own personal choices. And so as we look at this story of reconciliation, I want us to see the big story as well as make some pointed applications. So today as we uh, look at the text, we're going to ask this key question. How does the narrative highlight our need to understand and act upon God's reconciling grace? How does the text highlight our need to understand and act upon God's reconciling grace. And we're going to see that with two points today. Now, with that being said, I have a, a kernel of truth, and I forgot to make a slide for it. 
So you'll just have to write it down physically or write it down mentally as I say this. This is the truth that we will derive today from the text and we'll say over and over again. When you and I understand God's reconciling grace, then we will act accordingly. Now that is a loaded statement. When you and I understand God's reconciling grace, then you and I will act accordingly. When we understand God's reconciling grace, then you and I will act accordingly. Now, with that being said, we're going to talk about, first and foremost, God's reconciling grace that seeks restoration. That's what I see in chapter 32. God's reconciling grace seeks restoration. We'll, uh, we'll see, first of all, that God's reconciling grace seeks reconciliation and restoration with others. And we're going to see, secondly, that it seeks restoration with God. Now, that's just the order the text gives it. I could have flipped them. Uh, so let's talk about God's reconciling grace that seeks restoration. That's going to be our main thrust of this section of Scripture. God's reconciling grace that seeks restoration. Because when you and I understand God's reconciling grace, then you and I will act accordingly. So, let me start, start first by defining reconciliation. That's a big word we don't often use, right? So what does it mean to reconcile, or what does it mean to have reconciliation? Simply put, to reconcile means to bring two parties together, okay? The implication is there is a breach between them, right? There's an offense that needs to be restored. So to reconcile means to bring two parties together. Now, Paul has already told us in the New Testament, remember, we are now saturated New Testament believers that all Scripture is given by God's inspiration and is profitable for us in doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness to thoroughly equip us unto every good work. So we have the advantage of having the totality of Scripture informing our understanding of these Old Testament stories. But we don't want to eisegete or read backward into the story. We want to let the story unfold. But we also need to understand that the theology that came before is theology we should understand. God has reconciled us to himself through his son, Jesus. And so, again, what does reconcile mean? It means bringing two parties together that have been separated. Simply put, sin destroys. Uh, God said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of this particular fruit, of this particular tree, in that day you will surely die. You will be separated. God then confronts them with their sin that separated them, and he reconciles them by promising a seed who will do away with the with the, uh, the consequence of sin, that is death, forever. And then he would provide a covering for them that was outside of themselves. Remember, they presented themselves to God with leaves of, of their own making. Thus, they attempted to be righteous in God's eyes, and their own righteousness was insufficient. God had to provide a blood sacrifice to cover their sin symbolically, and one day he would provide the ultimate sacrifice that would cover their sin forever. So reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation within a covenant relationship that is within the family of God needs to follow the pattern of God's reconciling grace. If we understand God's reconciliation, then we will begin to act accordingly. Now, let's just zip backwards for a second, and let's put this in the framework of Jacob. Jacob's been gone for 20 years. Why did Jacob leave? Because there was a big breach between he and his brother. His mom said, your brother is going to kill you. You need to leave, right? Now, we don't get the luxury of, you know, alternate universe, right? Uh, Bible uh, infinity wars, okay? We don't get to the, the 
uh, luxury of an alternate universe where we see, well, what, what if? What if he didn't leave? What would have happened? Because obviously God is sovereign, right? Is God able to protect Jacob from dying at Esau's hands? Of course he is. But I've already mentioned the advantage or the benefit of God, uh, of Jacob's sin between his brother um, that separates the two, and he goes away, and now God is going to use that as another archetype, another story of his reconciling grace to bring them back together. Just like Abram was called out of Ur, so Jacob would be called out of Ur. Just like Jacob is, is renamed Israel at the end of our story and is the father of many nations, he's the father of the nation, the people of God, so God would exodus the nation of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. Just like God would send the seed through Adam and Eve, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that seed's name would be Jesus, uh, and that seed would crush the serpent's head, would deal the death blow to sin. So Jesus would destroy uh, the sin that separates us and brings us to Egypt so that we can go from Egypt, the world, to God's glory and celestial uh, abiding place, right? So you can see these pictures that God is pr producing here for us. But reconciliation then, when we begin to understand what God has done for us, then we will act accordingly. Jacob has left. There's been a breach. And for 20 years, he has now suffered. Would you say that Jacob's suffering was just? And again, remember, comparative righteousness is an illusion. I would, I would say um, maybe, but probably not. Because there's a lot of collateral damage in Jacob's life. Who are some of the collateral damage, uh, people that have suffered collateral damage? How about Leah? How about Rachel? Rachel was promised to Jacob, but on her wedding day, what should have been her wedding day, his, her sister married Jacob, right? I mean, this, the whole story's all bad. There's no good. It's all bad. Laban has done everything he can to manipulate the circumstances of his daughters and his son-in-law to get everything he wants. And as we found uh, at last week's message, we found that Jacob or Laban not only did that, but he also uh, spent all of the inheritance that belonged to his daughters that would have, was supposed to be held in trust. Thus, he himself was a wicked man. And so we find Jacob growing in a need to reconcile with Laban. And we find that happened at the end of chapter 30, 31. And so, in fact, let's go back here again, chapter 31, verse 51. Then Laban said to Jacob, here is this heap here, uh, excuse me, here is this heap, and here is this pillar which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond the heap to you, and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob swore by the father, the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and they stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. Now if we read the rest of the story prior to that, we find that both Jacob and Laban had separate names and separate piles of stone. There's a clear distinction between Laban and his people and Jacob and his people. Now, uh, not to get too mystical here or too allegorical, because that's not the point of the story. Um, there was, these are real people with real relationship issues. But one is clearly God's blessed child, and one is clearly not. Okay? So there is a distinction between Jacob, God's blessed child, part of God's covenant relationship, and Laban, who is outside of that blessing and covenant. Now, could Laban have been a part of that? And I think the answer has to be yes. But here Laban clearly makes his choice to distinguish himself with his son-in-law and from his son-in-law. And from that, we determined last week, and I didn't have time to dig into this because we ran out of time, 
But we determined last week when we're, when we're in relationships, sometimes it means we have to set boundaries. And here there's a boundary between a clearly saved, as it were, individual and a clearly unsaved, as it were, individual. Okay, I'm trying to make that application here. And uh, it's okay to, to understand that those who are lost, they're outside of the covenant relationship of God, they're going to have a character and nature that is going to drive them to do things that are different than your character and nature. And our expectation of them should be that they are lost. Now, ultimately in the big picture story, who is the one who provides blessing to everybody? God. So who can save Laban? Only God. So the fact that Jacob sets parameters and boundaries in Laban's life and between he and Laban is really important. It's important for us to understand. Um, he's doing so in a loving way. He's set up boundaries to say this, if this line gets crossed, there will be hostility between us. This covenant is a covenant of protection. If it's broken or violated, it will be a, a covenant of hostility. Now, we get now to a totally different side of things. Two brothers needing to reconcile to each other. For 20 years, Jacob has had a nagging fear. My brother is going to kill me. But God has driven Jacob away from Laban and back toward the land of promise. But do you think that has negated his fear? Probably not. I mean, let's be honest. When we read the text, Jacob does a lot of stuff that are, uh, would, would kind of insulate himself and the closest, his ring of closest loved ones. And we'll see that in the story. In case, in, in case Esau, to borrow a term from the 90s, in case Esau goes postal, he, he has sort of a buffer, right? Um, I can lose this group, but I don't want to lose this group. Now, he loses none of them, right? But in his mind, we find him wrestling with fear of reconciliation. But we see God driving him to reconcile with his brother, literally. So God's reconciling grace seeks restoration. And we're going to find this in their relationship with one another and with God. So let's go ahead and read chapter 32, and then we'll break it down. So Laban and Jacob depart, and this is how chapter 32 starts. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Now, this has an implication that this was a large host of angels, okay? This is only used in one other place in the Old Testament. It's in 2 Chronicles. I'm sorry, I forgot to write down the reference when I studied it earlier in the week, but it's only used in one other place. If you have a reference Bible, it may be noted there. Um, and it means a host of angels, like a big, big, big number, okay? Um, so Jacob doesn't just see an angel of God. He sees a host of angels. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of the place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants, and I have sent to my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people and that were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all of the mercies and of all of the truth with which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. 
Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob has grown tremendously, has he not? When he left under threat of death 20 years before, it was God who met him in a dream and said, I will be with you. You see these angels ascending and descending from heaven? I am the God who controls everything between heaven and earth, and I will be with you. Here it is Jacob who goes to God and says, Lord, have mercy. I've received your mercy, so therefore I compel you to give me more mercy. And I pray, I beg you to deliver me. Here is a man who has learned to trust in the God who delivers. God has already reconciled Jacob to himself. Jacob now understands that, reconcil that reconciling grace is for the purpose of his restoration with others. And that's where we see this text going. So let's keep going. So, verse 13, he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. Um, the word, uh, the, the phrase uh, came to his hand is an interesting phrase. It could mean that which he's, that which he had accrued or that which he had, um, uh, that which he had earned. But here the translators cho chose to translate it he came to, that came to his hand. And why is that? Because the context tells us God has been the one who has prospered him. And he has just made this incredible prayer to God to say, deliver me by your mercies. And he, so whatever came to his hand, he decided, I am going to present to Esau, my brother. So here's what he does, verse 14. Listen to this list. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. Um, I've heard, I'm not a farmer, but I grew up in farm country in eastern North Carolina and then lived in South Buckeye for 16 years. Um, I understand even a large herd of cattle um, really only needs one or two bulls. Here he has 200 she-goats that are, um, you know, mating age and ability, and he has 20 male goats. I mean, in other words, he is, he is giving what would be considered immense wealth to his brother just in this one flock. All right, let's keep going, though. 200, uh, 200 ewes and 20 rams. Okay, different breeds, same concept. 30 milk camels with their colts. So these are camels who've already delivered and they have, a, they have offspring. So he's given the, the camels and the offspring. 40 cows and 10 bulls. 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hands of his servant, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. So you notice he puts together a gift for his brother, and then he puts, he puts this, he, remember the Bible tells us earlier in the story that he, depart, he splits his company into how many companies? Two companies, two camps. But of the two camps, one of them is split into multiple gifts, okay? Um, this is like 12 days of Christmas on steroids. You know, gift number one um, comes bleeding by. Gift number two comes lumbering by. Gift number three, right? Are you, are you tracking? So uh, group one is all of the animals and the gifts that he's going to give away. Group number two is his family, all right? So let's keep going. And he commanded the first one, saying, uh, I'm sorry, verse 16, Then he delivered them the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass over before me, and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face, perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him, 
but he himself lodged that night in the camp. All right, so before I talk about the next section, verses 22 to 32, let's just pause here for a moment. Notice in the middle of this story, Jacob is faced with a crisis. Esau, he, he has set in his mind, I am going to reconcile with Esau. He finds out Esau's on the way to meet me. Now, Esau has 400 men with him. The scripture makes it clear, men. Now, let's go back historically. Abraham, grandfather Abraham, conquered an army of five kings with 300 chosen, trained men of his household. Why do you think Jacob is freaking out? Because in his mind, he's thinking, I am going to be a sheep led to the slaughter. I am about to be slaughtered. All I have are animals and children with me, and my brother's coming to me with an army. So, it, you know, lest we immediately think Jacob's just a wimp and he's panicking, he has some legitimate cause for concern. The last time he heard from his brother, his mother said, your brother is going to kill you. So he has no other recourse but to think, my brother has put together 400 assassins to take me out in the, in the most painful way possible, right? His imagination is running wild here. But the Jacob of old, who would have tried to figure out a way to do something about his imminent death, does not stop the pursuit of reconciliation. Does he not? No. Now, he does have a plan, but he doesn't stop. He continues pressing forward. Why? Because Jacob understands God's reconciling grace. And Jacob understands the need for restoration. Listen, friends, when you and I understand God's reconciling grace to us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, it will affect how we live. Maybe there's someone in your life that has been a constant bereavement and thorn in your flesh. Maybe there's been, they've berated you, they have torn you down at every side, they have pursued you relentlessly, and there has been nothing but pain and sadness and sorrow in your life, and it is centered around this person or this group of people. When you and I understand God's relentless grace that reconciled us to Him, it will affect how we live. Now, I need to be careful here and help us apply some of these truths. But remember, Jacob has set his heart to obey God at whatever the cost. He has set his heart to, be, to, to restore his relationship with Esau at whatever the cost. He is willing to lose his flocks and herds and even his own life and the life of his children at the cost of reconciliation. Now, we know the rest of the story, so we have the advantage, and I'm not trying to be super comparative here because apples and apples don't always work when we're talking about old stories. This is an illustration that could break down. But listen, God in his reconciliation, his bringing you to him through his son Jesus cost him everything. Peter describes Jesus' sacrifice as his precious blood. God calls Jesus his one and only son. You see, there was no cost too great for the price of your eternal soul. God is willing to go to the ends and the fullness of the extent of his love, mercy, and justice to save you from your sin. Therefore, God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. In the household of faith, within the covenant community, there's a distinction here between Laban and Esau in my mind. Within this covenant community, God wants you to understand the nature of his reconciliation will affect how you live. And here, 
Jacob is willing to reconcile with others. He's willing to do it at great cost. Now, he doesn't do it foolishly. He doesn't do it uh, without a plan. He does, the very first thing he does is he turns to God. He goes to God in prayer. And notice his prayer. He says, oh God, my father. This is a very personal prayer. He calls him daddy, Abba. How did Jesus tell us to pray? Abba, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. O God, my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. What is he saying? Creator and sustainer, supernatural, uh, omnipotent, eternal father in glory who is transcendent above all things. I give myself to you. I petition you. You told me to return to my country. I'm claiming your promises, and you told me to return to my family and that you will deal well with me. Now he doesn't argue or complain. He recognizes who he really is. Forgive us this day. Uh, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, Jesus would tell, tell us. Look what he says. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have sworn your servant. I crossed over the Jordan with nothing, and now I have great possessions. You see, when we receive Christ as Savior, we become adopted into his family. We get all the eternal blessings as an inheritor, as a son of God. We are not worthy to be called the sons of God, But when we receive Jesus Christ as Savior, we become worthy recipients in Christ. Jacob recognizes that the grace of reconciliation that's driving him to being restored to his brother is a grace that he is not worthy of. And this is why he is willing to lay aside personal ambition. He says, let it... So he says, uh, deliver me now, I pray, from the hand of my brother. Now he makes his petition, because I fear him, lest he come and attack me and and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he brings his petition to God. He claims the promise of God. This kind of reminds me of Job's prayer. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Sometimes reconciliation and restoration requires your willingness to be restored with others that have caused tremendous harm. Now, it it is, uh, the caveat is, go to God first. Go to God first. And so what we find here is Jacob is willing to do that. Now, um, I'm just going to say two more things and we just need to move on for sake of time. Notice that Jacob takes what God has given him. He, as I mentioned, um, he, he took what came to his hand as a present for Esau. This reminds me of the New Testament command to the Thessalonians that in everything we are to give thanks. Jacob is providing a present that God has provided to him, and he is giving a gift to his brother. In fact, we're going to find later in the story, um, the story has a definite, I mean, there's some tension here, right? I haven't read the rest of the story, but there's some serious tension going on. And Jacob doesn't know how this is going to turn out, but he decides to give a gift or a present. When you go to uh, reconcile with others, when we understand that our reconciliation to God has gifted us all the heavenly blessings... What is it that is more important than a restored relationship that we aren't willing to give? So he prepares his heart between he and God, and then he prepares a a present to give to his brother. Sometimes reconciling between friends or family members requires that you give something. Not just humble yourself, but be willing to give. Maybe, Maybe there's something you need to write down. Maybe you should write a letter Maybe there's been bitterness that has heaped up in your heart over the course of time, and you can give them the gift of forgiveness, even if they haven't asked for it, okay? So as we go on, I need to keep going. Um, let's, let's read the last part. So let's talk about this second half. 
And he, Jacob, rose that night, and he took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven sons, and he crossed over the ford at Jabbok. And he took them, sent them over the brook, and he sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said to him, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the, the muscle that shrank, which is in, on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Now, we don't have um, an incredible amount of time here to break down all of this, but essentially, he meets a theophany of God. This is probably the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, and he wrestles with him, and he gets renamed Israel means prince with God. And so God has established and firmly established his covenant with Jacob. This was Jacob's moment. Jacob had humbled himself. He'd looked for restoration with his brother. He had come to the point of prayer to God, and he had petitioned God, and he said, I am willing to even die in this process. And so God... Uh, reconciling, God's reconciling grace not just only seeks reconciliation with others, but with God himself. Before Jacob meets his brother, he makes sure that there's nothing between he and God. And this reminds me of Jesus' statement that uh, we ought to first examine ourselves, make sure that the beam, the sin in our eye, is dealt with before we go and address a speck in a brother or sister's eye. And Jacob has to make sure, as he wrestles with God, that he is indeed fully committed, fully submitted, and right with God. And God here blesses him. Um, there's, there's a lot of interesting, subtle nuance here, but I want to move on to chapter 33, because God's reconciling grace yields to God's plan. Here we find Jacob yielding to God, literally, God touching his, his hip as a reminder of his wrestling match with God, and he would constantly bear in his body a memorial of this reconciling love and grace of God. And so God's reconciling grace then yields to God's plan. Jacob's not just changed in his body, Jacob is changed in his heart after, after being reconciled with God. When you and I come to faith in God and we re receive his reconciling grace, it is a total life transformation. Our lives should look different. We should live differently. We should love differently. People should see a difference about the reconciling grace of God in our lives. And here we see that in Jacob. He literally has a, a, a halt in his step as a result of God wrestling with him. Now, chapter 33 now let's get back to the story, um, and I've got two subpoints here. God's reconciling grace yields to God's plan, even at great potential personal cost, we'll see in verses 1 to 3, and finally, reflecting God's generosity in verses 8 to 11. So here we go. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. Notice the order here. Well, first of all, Esau's pretty much passed all of the animals. So we're going to see what happened when he did pass them. But now there's only one company left. It's the company of the immediate precious family. But how does he divide them? Leah, Rachel, and two maidservants. This is important because later on, this is going to get flipped. Okay? And he put the maidservants and their children in front. Leah and her children behind Rachel and Joseph last. So right now, Leah is still not preferred in his mind. 
Then he crossed over before them and bowed down himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Notice what he does. He goes in between his children. Though he set them in groups apart, he goes in between. And no doubt, I mean, it doesn't say, the text doesn't say, um, but no doubt he probably said something like this. Hey, if he takes me out, run. Run as far as you can. Now, he knows 400 fighting men, they're not going to get away. They're not going to get very far. Uh, but he, he puts himself at, at risk. At great potential cost, Jacob, his, he realizes God's reconciling grace has yielded to God's plan. He knows it's God's plan to reconcile with his brother, and so he puts himself in harm's way. And notice what he does. He bows himself to the ground seven times. So the, the text has this implication. He's walking, he's running in front of his family to his kids. He stops and he bows down. He gets back up and he runs to his family. If I go too far, the, the microphone will scream at me, so I can't go too far. He'll, and he bows back down. He runs some more and he bows down. He runs some more and he bows down. And he does this seven times. Okay, So he is, he is at great personal cost demonstrating a yieldedness to God in this process. And so, uh, continue. He says, but Esau ran to meet him. Now, if we stop the text there, we're waiting for a scimitar, a spear, a, a, a bludgeoning axe, a hammer. I mean, you know, we've all watched The Lord of the Rings, you know. We're, we're, we're thinking this is it for Jacob. He's done. Count the ways that he's going to die. Is he going to strike him in the shoulder first? Is he going to take off an arm? I mean, what's he going to do? And, I mean, you know, but what happens? He finds that God has already gone before him. And Esau runs to meet him, embraces him, falls on his neck, and kisses him, and they wept. God had already prepared Esau's heart for a glorious restoration of relationship. He lifts up his eyes, and they saw the women and the children. He said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, and they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. I want you to Notice the word favor. It's the, often the word that's translated for grace in the Old Testament. It shows up a bunch in this section. Esau, so he te he's telling Esau his motive. I want favor with you. I want to be restored. I want a reconciled relationship. Why did he give gifts? Because it was a show of favor. I want to have a reconciled relationship. He says, uh, but he said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob says, no, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Notice here, Jacob isn't just meeting Esau. Jacob understood God's reconciling grace so that his restored fellowship with Esau was like restored fellowship with God. Do you see that? It's so important for us to understand when we understand what God is doing in bringing himself, bringing us to himself, when we bring others to restored fellowship with ourselves and with God, we are acting more like Jesus than at any other time. Was this easy for Jacob? No. In fact, Reading the story to this point, you would think, man, you're a nut. Jacob, you're a total idiot. This is the stupidest thing you've ever done. But for God, who had commanded him, and God, who had gone before him, and God, who had paved the way at great personal cost, we find Jacob is willing to submit and reconcile. We also find that this reconciliation God's grace yields to God's plan, and it reflects God's generosity, verses 8 to 11. And so we see here, um, he says, Please take my blessing, 
uh, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. In other words, Jacob insists, God has blessed me, thus I want to bless you. Then Esau said to him, let us take our journey. So the rest of the chapter is basically, we've been restored, we've been reconciled. They have a discussion about, hey, let's go back together and be restored to a great fellowship. But uh, Jacob is like, look, I've got little ones and herds. If we drive them hard, they're going to die. Um, I do think there's a little bit of pandering and, and a little bit of... Um, a little bit of separation still here in this passage because Jacob doesn't actually end up going all the way back um, to hang out with Esau. He builds booths and he plants himself there um, in Succoth. And so as we keep reading, he says, uh, Jacob says to him, my Lord knows the children are weak. Flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. If the men should drive them hard one day, they'll die. Please let my Lord go on ahead of his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure till I come to my Lord and see Aaron. Esau said, now let me, leave with, uh, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, hey, what need is there? Let me find favor. Again, he's saying, I want favor in your sight. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there, and he called it El Elohi Israel, God who is the God of Israel, God who is the God of the prince with God. And this is the end of Jacob's story. This is the final, uh, the final capstone to Jacob's reconciliation with Esau. Now, we're going to find out there's problems with Jacob's kids. Jacob still showed favoritism, and we're going to deal with all that sloppy, messy horror as we move forward into the story. We're also going to find the text will um, explain in chapter 36, the descendants of Esau. So we're going to see God's blessing on Esau because God blessed Abraham. Um, so that'll be sort of a, a hiccup or an interruption in the story. But here we find God has taught Jacob how to reconcile. And he's taught him when it comes to the lost, you set up boundaries, Laban. When it comes to your family, you lay it out there and you reflect, God, you reflect God's generosity and you yield to God's plan, um, even at great personal cost. Now, um, I, I know that I, I, what I don't want is I don't want to be misunderstood here. I don't want for you to think that what, what this text is teaching is in Christian reconciliation, you become carpet. That's not what I'm saying. Remember what I said last week. If you are in a circumstance or a situation um, where you are in harm's way or someone that, need, that you need uh, restored reconciliation with is going to harm you, that is a different scenario altogether. There, is, there are authorities on this earth with the sword that don't bear it in vain. Okay? If you are ever in danger of physical bodily harm, call the authorities. That is something you should and must do as a Christian. God ordained them for a reason and set them in place for a reason. And God is responsible for all of those authorities as well. But here we have a story of reconciliation that ends with God's glory and, uh, uh, God and the, God's man yielding to God his way. So in conclusion this morning, what is the kernel of truth that I have said over and over again? It's this. When you understand God's reconciling grace, then you and I must act accordingly. Who is God wanting you to reconcile with this Christmas season? Who is God wanting to use you to be light and salt? Remember, you and I can't change anybody. The Holy Spirit is the agent of change. The Word of God is the tool of change. I must first take the tool of change and the agent of change and, and be changed myself from the inside out. But when I partner with the agent of change and use the tool of change in my own life, God will often allow me to aid others in change.
So like Jacob, after 20 years of God's growth and sanctification in his life, 20 years of his following, his faithful follower, and becoming fruitful himself, he recognizes the ministry of reconciliation that he has been given. Paul told the Corinthian believers that we are ambassadors for God's sake, reconciling everyone to God the Father through Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. God wants us to be reconcilers this year, this Christmas season. And of course, as we get into the narrative later, there will be a lot more applications, but this one is a really big one. And I hope that this will yield some thoughtful, insightful discussion in your own personal lives and family. And remember, I'm not implying that you put yourself in harm's way or be in danger without proper authorities, uh, but make sure that you go to God in the pattern like Jacob did. God first, trust God, bring others along for safety's sake and for accountability's sake, and then see that restoration that God is already unfolding. You might find that God has already done a restoration in a heart that you could not have possibly imagined because God's grace is amazing and reconciled.